Si ota ofa, everybody, and this is Richard. Welcome to the Tokyo Kamiya podcast. This is episode five. Let's start the show. Before I continue with this episode, let's do a recap from last week. In last week's episode, we learn about the events that led up to the civil war that Finau Ulukalala was involved in. And that was about the time Mariner arrived in Tonga. We learned that in Tonga, it was controlled by three dynasties, all at the same time running simultaneously. The first one was the Tui Tonga. Then another line broke off from that called the Tui Ha'atakalaua. And then another line broke off of that called the Tui Kanokpolu. The Tui Tonga was a divine and a secular title. Due to a series of assassinations, another line was created called the Tui Ha'atakalaua. And they managed the secular affairs of the kingdom, whereas the Tui Tonga remained as the divine ruler more of a spiritual leader. The Tu'i Kanokpolu line split from the Tu'i Ha'atakalaua line uh, because the Tu'i Ha'atakalaua at the time wanted to have the kind, the same kind of rights and privileges of the Tu'i Tonga. And so they created the Tu'i Kanokpolu and they pretty much ran the affairs of the nation. So how did this war start? Uh, pretty much it was over the rights of succession. Muli Kihamea was the 11th Tu'i Kanokpolu. He vacated the title which left a void, and a woman by the name of Tupo Moheofo stepped up to take the title. Now, Tupo Moheofo was the daughter of a Kanokpolu. She was also a wife to the Tu'i Tonga. Her taking up the title of the Tu'i Kanokpolu was very, it was unprecedented and never unheard of in Tonga. However, a lot of chiefs supported her because of her high rank in Tongan society being one of the highest ranking Tongan people, uh, male or female, in Tonga. Her first cousin, Tukuaho, was not having it. He was, uh, at that time, the governor of Eua, and he left Eua and went to Tongatapu, and pretty much by using force, because Tukuaho was a well-known uh, warrior chief. He had spent time in Fiji, uh, engaged in warfare, and, and pretty much used his power and influence to drive Tupou Moheofo out of power. Tupou Moheofo then fled to Ha'apai, and then she tried to gather her armies and went back to attack uh, Tongatapu and tried to regain some of her territory and some of her influence, but she was not successful. And Tukuaho drove her back again, and then she ended up uh, in exile to Vava'u, where she lived the rest of her life. When he removed uh, Tupou Moheofo from the title of Tuikanokpolu, he installed his father Mumui. So Mumui was the Tuikanokpolu, the 13th Tuikanokpolu from 1793 to 1797. And then eventually Tukuaho became the 14th Tuikanokpolu from 1797 to 1799. And apparently he was not a very benevolent uh, ruler. He was actually quite cruel and is known for his cruelty. So there are um, documented uh, recordings of him, uh, just the brutal way he would kill people, um, cutting people in half, uh, burning people alive, putting them on stakes and uh, letting them starve to death and letting animals pick at them and things like that. 
And so uh, a plot to assassinate him was hatched. So according to history, the, the main uh, plotters for Tukuaho's assassination was one, Tupouniwa, who was um, Finau Ulukalala's half-brother, and then Finau Ulukalala himself, although he kind of stayed in the background because of uh, he had his own reasons, which we'll talk about in future episodes. And Muli Kihaamea was also another one. But there are also other records that say that Tupou Moheofo was actually the person who was orchestrating all this uh, because she was living in Wabau at the time. So this was her opportunity to exact revenge on Tukuaho. So the opportunity came when all the chiefs in Tonga would gather in Tongatapu in Hihifo in May of 1799 and this was for the annual Inasi for the Tuitonga and also the reburial of the 18th uh, Tuihatakalaua by the name of Toa Funaki. In the darkness of night, Tuponiua, Finaulukalala and some of the other chiefs went to uh, the quarters of Tukuaho and in his sleep uh, Tuponiua stood over him with his with an axe okay they didn't say club in the book they said an axe and so Tupo Niwa is just standing over Tukuaho and he slaps his face to wake him up because he wanted Tukuaho to know that he was about to kill him and he wanted him to know that it was him Tupo Niwa that is going to take his life and he did exactly just that and struck him in the head killed him and unfortunately I had to go back and reread this but everyone else in in the Tukuaho residence was also killed. The women, like everyone that was there, not one soul escaped. They were all slaughtered. Every single one of them just slaughtered. So then um, Tuponiwa and Finaulukalala and all the his their chiefs and all their warriors fought their way out of Tangatapu and out of Hihifo. And then they got some support from Dui Halafatai. Dui Halafatai had been in Fiji and he is actually the brother of Tupo Moheofo and he pulls up in his, you know, with his crew and they also assist in the fighting and so they battle on the next day and unfortunately he dies at the battle. Tupo Niwa and Fina Ulkalala and the rest of their fleet, they made their way to Haapai where they also had to go put down the loyalists there to Tukuaho. And once they got control of Hapai, they moved on to Vava'u, where they had to do the same thing. And once they got control of Vava'u, Afinao Ulukalala put Tuponiua in charge of Vava'u as kind of like the governor role. Um, and then he went back to set up his base in Hapai. And so from 1799 to when Mariner arrives in Tonga, which was like, what, 1806. And Finau Ulkalala had been going back to Tongatapu and trying to just take over it, but he was not uh, successful. Um, all of the chiefs in Tongatapu was able to uh, repel his attacks. And so with Mariner in the picture and the fact that Mariner knows how to use cannons and that he had procured these cannons from the Port-au-Prince, Finau Ulkalala is getting ready to lead another attack on Tongatapu. And that's where we're at in the story. Wow, that was a long recap. For those of you that are following the book, we are picking it up at page 
75 and I gave the wrong chapter last time. We're still in chapter 3 and heading into chapter 4. I'm going to do some cross-referencing to uh, a book called Church and State in Tonga that I mentioned in previous episodes, but this is a book on Tongan history written by Sione Latu Kefu. Now remember, Mariner is just giving a recollection of what he heard because these were events that happened before he arrived in Tonga, right? But Latu Kefu has some actual uh, records from missionaries and also other Europeans who were living in Tonga at the time. And uh, one of the records, it says, a fellow who had severed his head and body asunder was exhibiting them as proof of his prowess. And even some of the women, as they passed him, dipped their hands in his blood and licked them. Uh, this is from the LMS Missionaries, the Missionaries Transaction, dated May 10th, 1799. If you remembered, it, a couple episodes ago, I talked about a gentleman by the name of Vason, V-A-S-O-N. And he was the one who came with missionaries from England, and his trade was carpentry. And so he was brought over to build churches or whatever it was that the missionaries needed. He ended up marrying a Tongan woman. He was given a um, piece of land and he was considered a apostate or a heathen by some of his uh, fellows. Anyway, he uh, was under the protection of Mulikihamea. And so he uh, was also there witnessing uh, some of the events that were happening at that time uh, when they went to battle Tukuaho's people after he was assassinated. So from the book Church and State, it says, An eyewitness account by Vason, a renegade LMS missionary living under Mulikihamea, reported that it was a tough and bloody battle in which the Hihifo army was forced to retreat, leaving many of their warriors behind dead. Some took refuge at a sacred burial place in Bangai, believing that its sanctity would protect them from violence. Okay, I'm going to pause there because uh, I feel like I need to mention this important part. So there were parts in Tonga that were considered sanctuaries. So they were kind of like designated spots where warfare or killing any kind of bloodshed was not allowed. It was completely tapu. And so I remember reading somewhere that the village of Maufanga was one of those places anciently. Um, and now we have this place in Pangai mentioned in the book. Okay, so going back to the book, Finao Ulukala then appealed to Vaisen to set fire to the sanctuary, and he complied, throwing a firebrand into the thatch of a house in the enclosure, which ignited and quickly spread. Many of those sheltering inside were burnt to death or killed by Finao Ulukala's men as they tried to escape. Ulukala's men dragged the bodies to the beach, and after inflicting every brutal insult of savage cruelty, roasted and ate them, thinking it was just revenge on their enemies to devour them. After he had defeated his opponents in Tongatapu in 1799, and as a gesture of contempt and ridicule for the defeated party, Finao Ulkalala and his half-brother Tupo Niua set up a white pig in Hahake as Tuikanokpolu, and one of his chiefs, Vea Hahake, as the pig's representative, before proceeding to Hapai and Vavau. Another detail from the book, uh, Ulkalala and his warriors proceeded to Vavau, where after two weeks of sporadic fighting, the resistance collapsed and the Tui Vavau, Vuna III, and his chiefs, including one of Fina Ulkalala's own sons, Moenga Ngongo, who had sided with him, fled to Samoa. Interesting too, we learned from Vaisin that uh, the type of attire they would wear when they go to war. Vaisin described his fellow warriors as wearing nothing more than a malo or loincloth. Their faces were blackened and their limbs were decorated with additional figures in black. 
No covering was used on a warrior's head. Instead, the hair was shaved close except for a bunch on the crown of the head that was tied upright, resembling somewhat of a European soldier's cockade. Okay, this is a good time to just pick up where the story is and continue on. So Mariner and his companion, so this is the uh, surviving members of the Port-au-Prince. And if you remember in the last episode, I think there was 14. I can't remember. If you remember, great. Um, I, I'm not going to look through my notes right now, but it will come to me. So they received orders from Finao Ulkalala to prepare for the usual annual attack on Tongatapu. So they were instructed to get ready four of the 12-pound carronades. And according to Mariner, we immediately set to work to mount them upon new carriages with high wheels made by the native carpenters under our directions. When they presented it to Finao Ulukalala, he didn't like it because it doesn't fit their mode of warfare, which consisted of sudden attacks and retreats. And this thing was just like too heavy to carry and to maneuver. And so he didn't think that these carronades would fit their style of, of warfare, and especially his warriors would not be able to adapt to changing their style. And so um, what Mariner did, he promised Ulukalala if his men protect them, he and his countrymen, the other survivors of the Port-au-Prince, would be on the front line to fire off the carronades as long as they are protected. So then Finao Ulkalala reviewed the, uh, the plans and then after a few days, he uh, consented to it. So here we go. The next thing to do was to collect all of the ammunition um, that was brought from the boat. And so they were able to do that and then also to just produce more ammunition. And so... Uh, Mariner and the, his fellow Englishmen that were survivors from the Port-au-Prince uh, taught the natives how to make uh, ammunition for the muskets. And so everybody on the island was employed to provide some kind of assistance to the upcoming assault on Tongatapu. And uh, they repaired all of the sails on their canoes. Uh, they collected all the arms and the spears and the clubs. And even the women got involved by packing up bales of ngatu and mats. Okay, so the next part is very interesting because it just gives us more um, insight into the kind of person Finao Ulukalala was and just his characteristics. So we know just offhand, like some of the things that he's done, he can be very barbaric. Um, if you remember back in... Uh, a couple episodes ago, or actually no, the last episode when he rounded up all of the chiefs that opposed him, these were the supporters of Tuku'aho, and he would put them on a canoe and tie them up, and the canoe would just, it had a leak, and so they would leak all the way to the bottom of the ocean and die. And then you remember that man that climbed up the mast of the Porto Prince, and he was trying to strip the um, iron, and uh, Finao Ulukalala ordered uh, well, first he ordered Mariner to shoot him down, and Mariner didn't want to do it. And so he ordered one of the Hawaiians to do it. And then the Hawaiian um, guy just shot him down with no questions asked. And so we have this interesting exchange between Mariner and um, Fina Ulkalala in the next part of the book. So let's explore what that is all about. From the book we read, One day while these preparations were going forward, the king asked me whether I had a mother living. Upon my replying in the affirmative, he appeared much grieved that I should be separated so far from her. It is a custom in the Tongan Islands for men, and sometimes women, to adopt or choose a foster mother. 
even though they have their own natural mother living with a view of being better provided with all necessities and conveniences, such as cloth, oil, food, etc. On this occasion, the king appointed one of his wives, Mafihape, to be my adopted mother, telling me that if there was anything I wanted to make my situation more comfortable, I need only to apply to Mafihape, and as she was a woman of consequence, it was in her power to procure me anything that in reason I might require. This woman had afterwards as much real esteem and parental affection for me as she could possibly have for her own son. So we have this little snapshot of just uh, this tender moment between a mariner and Fina Ulukawa, and we see that he has a soft spot that he can also be uh, gentle and be kind as much as he is uh, cruel, which um, to me is just, you know, it's a reflection of the just uh, the complexities of, of mankind, of being human. Because in the next uh, paragraph, there is this uh, unfortunate incident of an insane woman in uh, the island of Lifuka. According to Mariner, she had become insane in consequence of excessive grief, partly occasioned by the death of a near relation, but principally by her child being taken from her to be strangled as an offering to the gods for the recovery of his sick father. As this poor woman was considered of no use to society, Finau was desirous that she should be put out of the way and as he was also anxious again to witness the execution of a musket ball, he one day desired me to shoot her. I entreated to be excused from this ungrateful task, assuring the king that I was perfectly willing to risk my life in his service against his enemies, but that it was quite contrary to the sentiment of the religion in which I had been brought up and to the laws of my country to destroy an innocent fellow creature in cold blood. So then Finau Ulkalala backed off and he wasn't offended at all. And so uh, the, that woman lived for another day. Okay, but then again, a few days later, oh, Finau Ulkalala, what are we going to do with you? The woman is on the beach again and Finau Ulkalala ordered a Hawaiian who was at hand with his musket to shoot her. And with ready acquiescence he leveled his piece and shot her dead on the spot i was at a little distance and saw the fact without having had it all in my power to prevent it she had just been in the act of picking up a shell or something as the shot struck her when she screamed out and springing two or three feet from the ground fell into the sea the people in general were rather glad that she was dead as she used to break into religious ceremonies and on other occasions when they were drinking kava and danced about to the annoyance of everybody, sometimes with scarcely any clothes on, which is considered very indecent and disrespectful. Oh man, this poor lady. So, you know, we go from tender, loving Finao Ulukawala who wanted to give Mariner a mother and then the next day he's shooting this woman um, who obviously had some mental health issues and they were very legit issues because she had lost uh, people that were near and dear to her and also one of her kids one of her children was strangled and offered as a sacrifice to the gods obviously she's going to carry that trauma throughout the rest of her life but you know that was um, very much the cultural norms of those times and so I'm not offering that as an excuse. I'm just saying that's how things were at the time.
Okay, now it seems like everything is prepared and they are ready to invade Tongatapu. But first things first, they had to invoke the gods and make their offerings and also consult with the priests and the priests assured Finau that he was going to be successful and so they departed from Lifuka. Finau Ulkalala had 14 canoes, most likely Kalias that can carry up to a hundred warriors and then Tuponiwa came with his fleet so they had total of 50 Kalias altogether. Finau then ordered his war party to uh, make Nomuka, which is an island in Hapai, to be the place where they would all rendezvous. So Finau ordered that the four largest Kalias would be the ones carrying a carronade each. So as they proceeded, um, the winds weren't in their favor, so they stopped at Uiha. And at Uiha, Finau took the opportunity to review all of his warriors. Most of them had painted their faces after uh, the manner of the, the warriors of Fiji, and also dressed in the manner of the warriors of Fiji. So while they were waiting for the winds to change, they were parading up and down, brandishing their clubs and spears, practice their fighting skills, while Finau Ulkalala would observe. Mariner says, each warrior of note ran singly close up to Finau and striking his club violently on the ground, cried out, this club is for, and then he would name a victim, mentioning the name of some individual enemy whom he meant particularly to seek out and engage. Others running up the same way exclaimed, Fear not, Finau. No sooner shall we land at Tongatapu than here is the club with which I will kill anyone who dares to fight against us. Finau and the chiefs thanked them for their love and their loyalty, and then he addressed them in a speech to the following purpose. Be brave in battle, fear not death. It is far better to die in war than to live to be assassinated at home or to die of a lingering disease. Okay, raise of hand, how many of you would rather be home or dying of a lingering disease? I don't think I was made for uh, 1800s Donga. So it took them a day and a night for them to wait for the winds to subside. And then they were joined by six additional Kalias and then they made sail for Nomuka, which was their rendezvous point. So at Nomuka, they remained there for two days and then they were joined by more allies. And so when they set out to Tongatapu, they had a total of 170 Kalias. So they reached the island of Pangaimotu. And those of you that are familiar with uh, the geography in Tonga, it's uh, just a little island uh, not far from Nuku Alofa. And that's where Finau Ulkalala and his allies uh, spent the night. So the next morning, uh, presents were brought to Finau. Uh, these were tributes from chiefs from Maufanga. Okay, so here's where Maufanga comes in. As I mentioned before, uh, Maufanga was a sanctuary village. Some of the greatest chiefs in Tonga were buried in Maufanga, and so um, it was considered to be sacred. And as I mentioned before, it was tapu to actually shed blood in those kind of spaces. The penalty is if you killed or if you took a life of somebody, then you would have to forfeit your own life. And so it's interesting that, you know, these um, rules, these norms were already put in place um, in Tonga at the time, but then Finau Ulukalala chose to ignore them when they assassinated Tukuaho and they were fighting his people. Uh, because we learned earlier that when they were in Pangai, which was also one of these uh, sanctuary villages or spaces, he completely disregarded um, the the laws there and the tapu 
and he had Vason actually help him drive those people out of those sanctuary areas using fire into a spot where he and his men could kill them. And actually that just shows you, you know, the cunning and the intelligence of Fina Ulukalala to use a palangi. Because, uh, you know, the taboos aren't going to affect the palangi. But Fina Ulukalala didn't have to go on site and kill those people. He used Vason to drive those people out of hiding from those sanctuary areas where he could actually have access to them and end their lives. So pretty brilliant, but also brutal and <laughs> he's this dude this dude is crazy just as his name implies ulukalala hot-headed hot-headed but at the very same time he's he's actually quite intelligent in the way he strategizes anyway so back to uh the book so mariner describes these sanctuary uh villages or designated spaces uh he says if the most inveterate enemies meet upon this ground they must look upon each other as friends under penalty of the displeasure of the gods and consequently an untimely death or some great misfortune. There are several of these consecrated spaces on different islands. So the chiefs of Maufanga come to Pangaimotu to present gifts to Ulukalala. And then afterwards, he immediately proceeds to his father's grave with several of his chiefs and matapules. He also takes mariner with him. At the gravesite, they perform the ceremony of Tuki. So Tuki is one of those ancient uh, ceremonies. We don't see this happen that much, or if at all, but uh, this is definitely something that is, you know, part of the warrior culture. And uh, what would happen in this ceremony of Tuki is that they, these warriors, uh, the, before they go to battle, they would invoke the gods and also the spirits of uh, deceased ancestors who were like famous warriors and so they would invoke them and they would plead for them to take their side during the time of war to ensure their victory so mariner describes you know the attire they have to wear when they are performing this ceremony is they have to wear a taovala and they also have to wear a wreath made from the leaves of the ifi tree and this has long been a symbol of uh, respect and humility in Tongan culture. Mariner describes the ceremony as such. They sat down cross-legged, which was the usual way of sitting before the grave. Finau, as well as the rest, beating their cheeks with their fists for about half a minute without speaking a word. One of the principal matapulas then addressed the spirit of Finau's father to the following purpose. Behold Finau, who has come to Tongatapu to fight his enemies. Be pleased with him and grant him thy protection. He comes to battle, hoping he is not doing wrong. He has always held Tuitonga in the highest respect and has attended all the religious ceremonies with exactness. One of the attendants then went to Finau and received from him a piece of kava root, which he laid down on the raised mount before the Faitoka. Several others who had pieces of kava root in their bosoms went up to the grave in like manner and deposited them. The ceremony being thus finished, Finau and his friends returned to the beach where a large root of kava was brought to them as a present by the chief of the consecrated place on which they regaled. And the Faitoka, by the way, is the... So you have the cemetery, but the Faitoka is like the grave of the person that they are honoring. And in this case, it was Finau Ulukalala's father, who also has the same name. So while they were at the cemetery, um, Finau Ulukalala's men were preparing for battle. 
when they were already Finau and his attendants, proceeded to the fortress called Nuku'alofa, the strongest, though not the largest, in the whole island. Mariner then gives us a description of the fortress uh, in Nuku'alofa. The fortress is situated on the west coast of the island. Okay, his geography is a little off because Nuku'alofa is actually in the middle of the island. So anyway, um, it's 100 yards distant from the water's edge and occupies about four or five acres of ground. It consists in the first place of a strong wall or fencing of reeds, something like wicker work, supported on the inside by upright posts from six to nine inches in diameter and situated a foot and a half distant from each other to which the reed work is firmly lashed by tough sinnet made of the husk of the coconut. This fencing is about nine feet in height, these posts rising about a foot higher. It has four large entrances, as well as several small ones, cured on the inside by horizontal sliding pieces made of the wood of the coconut tree. Okay, his description of the fort goes on and on. So if you want to know more about this fort, go to the book and read it because it's actually kind of dry, very dry. But he does mention that one of the things that was unique about the Nuku'alofa fort is that most of the forts in Tongatapu were square, but this one was round. Okay, so now we are finally at war and Finau pulls up with his whole fleet just off of Nuku'alofa. So he had Mariner and the other Englishmen, eight of them who were armed with muskets, and they proceeded to land his warriors while the British men were uh, providing coverage with their muskets. The muskets were very useful because it drove back the warriors that were coming out of the fort back into the garrison and the first fire killed three wounded several and then they they shot off another round which killed more and then in five minutes uh, there was only 40 of them remaining 40 of the enemy warriors and so they started to retreat and then Finau's army just advanced on them and started killing them meanwhile the carronades were brought out dismounted from their carriages so they were actually carried they were hand carrying these carronades like remember Finau's concern that they weren't able to maneuver and that it wasn't going to be mobile enough and it might get in their way so the solution to this was actually just to carry it which is pretty brilliant and so they brought out the carronade so imagine this scene the warriors from the fort are just they're being driven back most of them have already been taken down by the muskets and then the remaining ones are being just killed off by Ulukalala's men okay Ulukalala's not done he is bringing out the carronades and he is gonna fuck it up and here is the this is where you know Finau Ulukalala is a badass he brought a chair with him an English chair this was a chair that they salvaged from the Port-au-Prince and he brought it with him and so when they had arrived at Nuku'alofa it was in low tide and the reef was exposed. And so he was monitoring the war, this battle, sitting on this English chair on the reef. How badass is that? And can you tell I'm just like really excited for this part of the battle because I could totally see this in a movie. This is so, this is like epic badassery. So they fire the carronades and this goes on for about an hour, okay? And then... Finau Ulkalala sends for Mariner. And so, mind you, he's on this reef and he's monitoring what's happening. And he can't really see, like, the damage that the cannons were creating. So he calls Mariner to come over to him. And he's like, hey, uh, 
I, I'm not impressed. Like, what the hell is going on? And so Mariner had to assure him that, oh, yeah, it, it's they actually are, like, completely fucked. So they were able to wear down the fort. Uh, they killed a lot of the enemies. And then they were actually able to get in the fort. Mariner writes, the conquerors, club in hand, entered the place in several quarters and slew all they met, men, women, and children. The scene was truly horrible. The war whoop shouted by the combatants, the heart-rendering screams of the women and children, the groans of the wounded, the number of the dead, and the fierceness of the conflagration formed a picture almost too distracting and awful for the mind steadily to contemplate. Some, with a kind of sullen and stupid resignation, offered no resistance but waited for the hand of fate to dispatch them no matter in what mode. Others that were already lying on the ground wounded were stuck with spears and beaten about with clubs by boys who followed the expedition to be trained to the horrors of war and who delighted in the opportunity of gratifying their ferocious and cruel disposition. Every house that was not on fire was plundered of its contents, and the conquerors made a considerable booty of bales of tapa and mats, etc. So for nine, actually it says here, 11 years, Fina Ulkala has been trying to take over this fortress in Nuku'alofa, and he wasn't successful. But in a few hours, with these carronades and with these muskets, he was finally able to bring it down. Back to Mariner's account, when Finau arrived upon the place and saw several canoes which had been hauled up in the garrison, shattered to pieces by the shot and discovered a number of legs and arms lying around and about 350 bodies stretched upon the ground, he expressed his wonder and astonishment at the dreadful effect of the guns. He thanked his men for their bravery and myself and my companions in particular for the great assistance rendered by us. So we come to find out that the, the few of the enemy that had escaped uh, death, they were taken prisoners and they were just bewildered at the destructive effects of the cannons. They declared that when a ball entered a house, it did not proceed straight forward, but went all around the place as if seeking for men to kill. It then went out of the house and entered another still in search of food for its vengeance and so on. So they go on and describe the, you know, the damaging effects of the cannon from the perspective of people who've never seen it before. So it's a little long. I'm not going to go into it. I think we kind of get the idea. So obviously, Final Ukalala is very pleased with uh, the results. And so he makes preparations to return to Pangaimotu. And Mariner is like, no, we got the advantage. Let's go and attack another fort. But uh, Final Ukalala didn't agree with that strategy. So it seems like Mariner is a little bewildered by this decision. He says, It seems Final was not yet the complete warrior, or he thought, perhaps, that having such powerful weapons in his possession, he could reduce the island at any future time. I think I, I believe that last part more than um, his observation that Final was yet not yet a complete warrior. I don't think that's um, true. I think this is just um, Mariner not understanding the Tongan way of thinking I can totally relate to this we like to work hard and at the same time we like to play hard I think that Finau Ulkalala just wanted to rest you know he had a very he had a good day so Finau Ulkalala returns to Pangaimotu with all his men 
Um, Mariner says it's about three quarters of a mile distant from Tongatapu. I think that's pretty accurate. As soon as they arrived, they sat down to eat because they had not eaten anything uh, prior to that battle at the Nukualofa Fortress. They remained on Pangaimotu for several days and several canoes were sent out to uninhabited parts of Tongatapu to get reeds because they were going to use it to rebuild the fort. And um, this was done because this was the admonition of Finau Ulukalala's priests. And um, it was pretty much customary for, for chiefs to travel uh, to bring their priests along with them as part of their traveling party. So they procure all the supplies that they need to rebuild the fort at Nukualofa. And so the plan was to make this one bigger and they were able to accomplish the rebuilding of the fort in two days. So they had some setbacks while they were building this fort. Some of the men were injured because they fell. And in these pits were um, concealed sharpened sticks at the bottom of the pit so that when you fall, you get hurt or killed by these sharp sticks. And they were hidden with banana leaves. And then the other thing that um, annoyed the, the workers as they were building this fort was just the smell of dead bodies. Like there were dead bodies everywhere. And Mariner notes that uh, they didn't want to bury them because none of them were their relations. And so they just laid there um, on the side dead and rotting away. The fort had four doors and they brought the carronades into the fort and placed them uh, at each door. They would send out small parties to go get food, things like coconuts and they were usually attacked by the enemy. Uh, some of them were killed, and so securing food for the fort was a problem. And in one incident, there was a party that was sent out to get food, and they were attacked. And so the party was killed, except for one who was able to escape, and he made it back to the fort. Once he notified them of what happened, a party of 200 set out, and Mariner was one of them, and they went to pursue the enemy. So Mariner and them gave chase. They were you know, fighting with them. And as they were fighting, another part of the party that was hiding uh, came out and ambushed them. They were able to kill 30 of the men that was with Mariner. So they began to retreat back to the fort. And while they were running through a field of grass, Mariner fell into a hole that was six feet deep. Four of his men stopped to help him and they were able to defend their spot with the spears while one of them was trying to pull Mariner out of the hole. One of the men was killed on the spot and so uh, another party was advancing on them and Mariner and the men that were with him were like, okay, this is it. We're going to fight or die. And just about as they were uh, to clash with the enemy party, some of their other uh, men from their party showed up to help them. Mariner says, while this was going forward, a Hapai chief at some distance from our party met a Tongatapu chief under the same circumstances. They immediately engaged with their clubs. One, however, being soon disarmed and the other having broken his club, they fought a long time with their fists. And when they were so weak that they could not strike, they grappled with each other and both fell to the ground, unable to stand any longer. The Tongatapu chief, incapable of injuring his antagonist in any other way, got his fingers into his mouth and had them gnaw dreadfully. And having thus laid for a long time looking at each other, they gathered a little fresh strength and by mutual agreement each crawled home to his respective fort. Good Lord. Mariner goes on to say, The Ha'apai men on their way back to Nukualofa found several of their party in different parts of the road who were unable to proceed on account of their wounds, but they were too weak themselves to carry them 
and were obliged to leave them to the mercy of the enemy. They at length arrived at the Kolo, tired and fatigued beyond conception, with about 15 prisoners. So the next day they have these prisoners and some of the younger chiefs, these were the chiefs who had um, spent time in Fiji and they uh, had a liking for human flesh. And so they had proposed that they take these 15 prisoners and cook them. At this time, there was also a scarcity of food. A uh, canoe was sent to Ha'apai for some provisions, and they haven't came back yet. And so they were waiting for food, and people were starving. So some of the prisoners were killed. Uh, their flesh was cut up into small portions, washed with seawater, wrapped up in plantain leaves, and roasted under hot stones. Two or three were emboweled and baked whole, like the same as a pig. I was not tempted to partake of this kind of diet, though the smell of it when cooked was exceedingly delicious. Hmm. Ooh, Mariner was even... See, even he had to say that human flesh smelled yummy. He goes on to say, A few days now elapsed without signs of the canoes from Hapai, and the distress of those who did not choose to eat human flesh was very great. I had been two days and a half without eating anything. When passing by a house where they were cooking something, I walked in with a pleasing hope of getting something that my stomach would bear if it were only a piece of rat. On inquiry, I was told that they had some pork and a man offered me a piece of liver, which I eagerly accepted and was raising it to my mouth when I saw by the smile on the countenance of the man that it was a human liver. Overcome by disgust, I threw it in the man's face, who only laughed and asked him if it were not better to eat good meat or die of hunger. There's that good old Tongan humor. <laughs> so the canoes came back uh, two weeks later, and they came back with a supply of provisions, and apparently they were delayed because of the weather. So you know how I mentioned earlier that Finau Ulgal had allies from all different parts of Tonga, and part of his allies were from Nukunuku, and so they had requested if they could leave and go bury the dead bodies of their um, relations during the battle. And so they left uh, to Nukunuku. So they recovered six bodies from the 350 bodies that was laying around. And uh, they went back to Nukunuku to bury them. Meanwhile, Finau Ulkalala was getting uh, more and more allies coming to his side. And then Finau Ulkalala gets a visit from Takai. And Takai was the chief of the Kolotau, or the fort known as Pea, which was about four miles to the east of uh, the Nukualofa fort. And he wanted to uh, enter into an alliance with Finau and also acknowledge Finau as the king of Tonga. So three weeks had passed and no attacks came from the enemies, and Finau decided that this was a good time to return to Ha'apai, and also, he needed to go back to perform the ceremony of Fakalahi. And this was a religious ceremony that he had to do. There was no way he could avoid it. So, Fakalahi is uh, when Atui Tonga passes away, people eat. And you know how we are. So, uh, they eat and they... Not so much a celebration, but you know when we have our putus, uh, one of our obligations is to feed the people who come um, to mourn with you. And so... 
When I do it on a dice, this is like done on a larger scale, you know. So there is like feasting, and they do this for a month. Afterwards,、um, then they put a tapu restricting eating all those kinds of foods for eight months. And the reason why they do this is to replenish all the foods that were eaten during the time of the Tuitonga's death. And so some of those foods were hogs,、uh, fowls, and coconuts, and then some of the root crops.、Uh, those were taboo for eight months. Tapu, that's where the word、um, taboo is taken from. And then the fakalahi is when they would remove the tapu so that people can eat those foods again. Mariner also mentions that there were two or three plantations in Tonga at the time that were exempt from this, because they needed to provide those food materials for religious ceremonies. Mariner also mentions that if the fagalahi is not done,、uh, the gods will become exceedingly angry and revenge themselves by the death of some of their great chiefs. So after consulting with his priests,、uh, they advised him that he should go back to Hawaii. For this、uh, ritual of the Fagalahi, and so he took his men.、Uh, he decided at first that he was going to leave a hundred of his men at the fort, but his priest advised against it, and so he ended up taking everybody with him, and they went back to Hapai, and leaving Takai as the、uh, person in charge of the fort. So Finau Ulkalala makes his way to Pangaimotu, and then、uh, sailing to Hapai the next morning. While he's at Pangaimotu, they notice a huge fire in Tongatapu, and it's coming from the direction of the Nukualofa Fort. Before sunrise, they sent out、uh, some men to go check it out, and then they came back with the news that Takai was no friend. He was a jerk. He came under the pretenses of wanting to be an ally to Finaulkalala, but he was there to destroy him. And so he burnt down the fort, and he wanted to do it while Finau Ulkalala was still in Tongatapu, so that he could see him, because he knew that that would really piss him off. And you know, Finau Ulkalala, being a hothead, he wanted to go back and just like engage him, and beat his ass down. But his priest told him not to go, and that because he has this important thing that he has to go do in Hapai. And Finau Ulkalala was just incensed, but he decided that this was the best thing to do. The good thing is, is the next day a chief by the name of Filimoyatu, he arrived at Pangaimotu, and he came to announce to Finaulkalala that he and his family and his village were there to serve him, and they were willing to join his side as allies. Wow, was that a crazy episode or what? We finally get to see Finau Ulukalala flex his muscles, and now that he has a mariner at his disposal and his knowledge of how to use muskets and the carronade,、uh, he is now establishing himself as the badass of Donga. And how about him sitting on the reef on an English chair, just monitoring the war? That was so bad. And then we see an, a moment of tenderness with him asking Mariner, you know, if he has a mom, and and then he provides、uh, Mariner with one of his wives as a mom figure in his life. That was cool. But then the next moment, he like orders the killing of a woman who was obviously、uh, had a mental illness related to 
a death of someone that was very close to her and the story just gets better i mean this story has like all the elements of an epic uh hollywood movie and i don't even know why this isn't a movie yet so hopefully one of the things that i uh, want out of this podcast is that someone out there listens to it and just like hey thinking this is going to be a good movie and develops it this story just has everything all the elements of a good epic hollywood blockbuster anyway that is the end of this episode episode five thank you all for listening uh again if you have questions uh send it to me rwolfgram at gmail.com or uh, leave me a message on our anchor page on our little handy voicemail feature you can also leave a voicemail on my google voice number which is 385-347-0906 So thank you all again for listening. Someone had mentioned to me about having like a little book party or gathering. I would love to do that. So uh, maybe we can talk about that more in the future. Episode six is going to drop soon. I actually uh, am prepping it and getting ready to record it. And I'm going to drop that tomorrow during President's Day. So I want to give a shout out to a few people who are listening and have uh, messaged me. Isoakava uh, in New Zealand. Thank you so much for listening. I also want to give a shout out to uh, Kolokesa and Kenneth in New Zealand, to Michelle Tuitupo here in Salt Lake City, Utah, to Siva and Meliani Tonga. Thank you for your support. Love you both. These are my two uh, relatives. To Anthony Matoto, listening all the way from Spain. Thank you so much. To the dynamic duo at the Hella Vela podcast. Uh, Chief Wet Wet and also Silencio. Also a shout out to one of my other favorite podcasts for the cultures to Bex Bumble and D-Boy. I really loved the episode about the census with Alisi Tulua. Thank you so much. There is so much about the census that we don't know about as a community and so I highly recommend for you if you are not tuned in go in and listen to this episode on for the cultures and then a belated happy birthday to Johnny Valens Tokoso of the Johnny Valens show for you hoes happy belated birthday to you and then how about Taika Waititi and his uh, Oscar that was so awesome a very proud moment for all of us uh, he being Maori and we all being from the Pacific you know that was a nice win for all of us and as well as Paris Goble who was doing um, that thing on the Super Bowl we are just everywhere and I love it 2020 is the year of the Polynesian right right so thank you all again for tuning in and stay tuned for episode 6 which is gonna drop very soon see you